the very, very magnificent and very beautiful way of writing poetry. This would be the equivalence if we were to write a poem using, using the English alphabet, starting with the letter A and writing each line with a word that begins with A eight times and then moving on to B and then C all the way through Z. Be difficult at, at most for some of us, especially myself. Be very challenging. But that's what brings us to the third unique aspect of Psalm 119 is not only is it large and not only is it an acrostic, it's an acrostic with one general theme. I might be able to take A and write a sentence, eight sentences, but it's not going to all connect together going on to B through Z. But there is one major theme throughout this whole psalm, and that's the law of the Lord. The major thing. And it's fitting, right? The Mount Everest in the middle of our Bibles, this huge peak of verses, all compiled to focus and delight upon the Word of God. It's a masterpiece. Some believe that this took years to gather and to write out. But it's clear where the delight of the psalmist is. It's in the Word of God. Our, our subtitles aren't inspired, but some subtitles can really let us know where we're headed towards. The ESV, of course, is your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a verse in Psalm 119. I have another one that says, I love your law, O Yahweh. I like that. That's really the theme and the foundation of this psalm. Each stanza going deeper and deeper and deeper into that thought. It might appear at first glance that it's redundant, but no, we're going to take a diver, uh, a deeper dive to see that that's not the case, that there is meat in every stanza that goes deeper into the psalmist's love and joy and delight in the law of the Lord. It's important for us to note that the psalms are just beautiful. They were the Israelites' hymn book, if you will, for quite a while. But they do one thing for us. Any human emotion, it has been said, that one could experience has been expressed and penned within the Psalms. Any emotion that you could experience has been penned at one point along the way in the Psalms. It speaks to the heart, to the soul of the individual. And it's important to, to note that what we can glean from this is just by asking two very simple questions along the way. What does this psalm tell us about God? What does this psalm tell us about mankind? And it's that first one that I really want to direct us towards, especially in this first stanza in verses 1 through 8, is what does it tell us about God, but more so, what is God telling us about a very important question? My question is, what is the blessed or happy life? Or how can I be happy in life? I've entitled this message, The Blessed Way. The Blessed Way. And God is going to direct us in that way. And I want us to see three things. The first three verses, we'll look at God's way. God's way. The second uh, point will be God's command. 
God's command in verses 4 through 6, and then those last two verses, God's praise. So let's begin with God's way. Verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, blessed. We get this both times. It just pops off the page there. Some translations will even translate it happy or joyful. But who gets to decide ultimately who is blessed and who is happy? Or who gets to define what true happiness is? Well, as the people of God, we would agree that God has that right and that say. And that's where we see. God is the one that's going to declare and show to us this morning the way to true happiness or who is truly blessed according to his commands. It's his way. The Psalms actually begin in verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Brother Rick read before his pastoral prayer, the blessed man is, not, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, the, the, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is also touched on in Psalm 19 and again here in Psalm 119. It's almost if he's holding nothing back here in Psalm 119 about his delight in the law of the Lord. But this blessed man, well, according to God's way, first we see two things. First, the blessed man is to be blameless. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. The blameless man is unblemished or complete. A blameless man is a man of integrity and above reproach. It's first, it'd be important for us to not run to the New Testament yet here when we try to understand this. We actually have characters in our Old Testament Bibles that remind us that there's been some that have been called blameless. Noah was called a blameless man. In Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Job was considered a blameless man or called a blameless man. In 1-1 of Job, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. A man that is blameless is a man of integrity. A man that's unblemished, unblemished, complete, whole. But we got to remember we have verse 1 here. We have a second line. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Poetry is not my strong suit. And English poetry, though, kind of throws us a bone from time to time. If the author uses rhyming, we can identify some things. Oh, this is a poem here, or I can understand this poem a little bit. This is the extent of my poetry and, and my discovery of poetry. How about the old woman who lived in a shoe? Ever heard of her? There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. She gave them some broth without any bread, kissed them all soundly, and sent them to bed. I can hear that. I hear the rhyming in that. All right, I see where we're going here. Hebrew poetry uses something very similar. It's called parallelism. The lines after the first line either explain, expand upon, or show a contrast to the previous line. Here we have an explanation of the first line. Let me give you more here. Not only is the man's way blameless, he walks in the way of 
the law of the world of Lord. Here's what's interesting. This walk and way, very similar to speak of their conduct, their way of life, the manner in which they live. He lives according to the law of the Lord. So the law of the Lord. Here's our first example. In, in Psalm 119, we'll see many descriptions of the word of God. And here's the first, the law of the Lord. In a very broad sense, this could mean any written revelation that God gives to his people in instructing them. Any written revelation that God gives to his people and in instructing them. For the Israelite of the day, this would be very narrow. It would be the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is what instructs the people, instructs them on how they are to relate to God and how they are to relate to others. In Psalm 1, we see that the blessed man is one whose way is pure or blameless because God's law instructs and directs his conduct and his lifestyle. Very important. It directs his conduct and his lifestyle. The blessed man does not just talk the talk, he walks the walk, if you will. But next, the blessed man we see in verse 2 is one who keeps or observes the testimonies of the Lord. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So this keeping, this observing the, uh, the commandments, the word of God. This is a theme not only in our stanza here, but through the rest of the psalm. Observing the words of God. It speaks about obedience to God's law, to God's word, and it directs him. And it's important, though, for us to notice that second line again. It's who seek him with their whole heart. It's the foundation of their obedience. Their obedience isn't in just a vain mode. It's not just exterior. Their aim is in seeking and pursuing the holy God. That's why they obey. They long to be near their God. That's where their obedience is found. Not in any vain way of obeying. Their heart is Marked by true obedience. It's genuine. It's a whole heart, not a divided heart. They want the Lord. That's their aim. There's actually maybe even kind of an illustration, an example of this, in Jesus addressing the religious leaders time and time again. He actually tells of a kind of a parable of two sons. He says, a man has two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, to the, said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. It's rooted in faith and trust and a good God. This obedience is rooted in seeking the Lord. In verse 3, he comes back again to this blameless man who also do no wrong, but walk in his way. Whose way? That's God's way. 
God is the one that describes the blessed man as one that is blameless because he walks according to the law. One that is also keeping, observing, obeying the law as well. So what are we to do with this? Well, let's begin with Christ. For a believer in Jesus Christ, as we read verse 1, 2, and 3, there is no one that fulfills this better than Christ, right? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Christ's way was blameless. Who walks in the law of the Lord. He walked perfectly and completely in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his commandments. He kept his father's testimonies. He kept those fully. Who seek him with their whole heart. Oh, he loved his father. Who also do no wrong, blameless, upright, but walk in his ways. That's Christ. We could say this classifies and describes Christ fully in verses 1 through 3. He is truly the blessed man, but he is also the doorway for others to be blessed and happy in the Lord. He's the doorway for us to be happy in the Lord. So we look to Christ. We understand that he is the way to a blessed life. In Christ, one can become blameless before God. In Christ, one can walk in obedience to the law of the Lord. In Christ, one can seek the Lord purely. In Christ, one can be counted as righteous before the Lord. In Christ, one can be blessed. That's God's way. Through faith and repentance, trusting in Jesus or Christ alone for salvation, one is declared right before God and blessed and blessed. The world, on the other hand, they have other ideas, other theories on what true happiness is or the path to true righteousness or happiness. I actually did a simple Google search and discovered very quickly there are varying answers to how to seek happiness. And actually, they would all agree that there's not just one way we would have to disagree with that. For example, the New York Times, what a trustworthy uh, source here for discovering true happiness. You know how you do it? You conquer your negative thinking. Yes, that's it. Conquer your negative thinking. Don't try to stop negative thoughts, they say. Telling yourself, I have to stop thinking about this, only makes you think about it more. Instead, own your worries. When you are in a negative cycle, acknowledge I'm worrying about money. I'm obsessing with problems at work. They also say, hey, treat yourself like a friend. When you are feeling negative about yourself, ask yourself, what advice would you give a friend who is down on herself? Now try to apply that advice to yourself. Silliness. Though positive thinking, God-honoring diets, and all the many other things that we could try to implement in our lives to seek happiness, though they might be good, that's not God's way. God's way is the right way to a blessed life, and that is ultimately through Jesus Christ and through a blameless way of living before him. So God's way. Number two, God's commands. Look at verses four through six with me. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my way may be steadfast in keeping your commands. Then I shall not be put to shame 
having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. We see, it, we see kind of a shift in the text here. Do you notice he begins to address the Lord? And often, most of the time as we read through this psalm, we're going to see it almost reads like a prayer. Him directly either pleading with the Lord, calling out to the Lord. He says, you have commanded your precepts. And rightly so, God commands his people. Rightly so, God commands what is right, what is good. We see the word precept. This is the third term we see for uh, in describing the law of the Lord. It refers to things appointed or charged by God. He gives charge as to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And he gets to declare what that is. And what he demands is obedience, obedience to his commandments. And there's really three descriptions within these verses that describe this obedience. First, look, that they be kept diligently, diligent. The commandment of God should be obeyed diligently. This means in abundance or a great degree. The aim is for it to be kept carefully and fully. You've heard it said partial obedience is disobedience. That's, what it, that's what's here. It's not, well, I'm going to do this really well, but yeah, I don't do that very well. No, he wants it all to be obeyed diligently. The Israelites are a prime example of this. As they went into the promised land, they were given the task to drive out all the other nations. They partially obeyed. It wasn't just out of just pure anger, which God was was demonstrating this. No, he had a purpose and an aim. He knew that if they fellowshiped with these nations, they would be a snare to them and worshiping foreign gods, false gods. He wants full obedience, not partial obedience. Second, the psalmist cries out that he would keep the commandments of God with, what does he say? To be steadfast, steadfast or consistent. Some translation use the word established, meaning fixed in obeying the commandments of God. Meaning there is no circumstance that will change the way I'm going to obey God's commandments. Doesn't matter how hard it gets, I'm going to obey until the end. I want to be steadfast, consistent. I want to be faithful as he is faithful. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Listen very carefully. This is Joshua towards the end. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A steadfast obedience. No matter the surroundings, no matter the events, I'm going to obey fully and faithfully the word of God. It's the prayer of the believer. Having a transformed heart, they have a desire to obey the Lord fully and faithfully. But look thirdly, he says, 
then I shall be put, should not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Eyes fixed on your commandments. This speaks actually to, uh, of considering and thinking about the word of God. If you're just to look over to the next stanza, we'll look at this a little bit more in the future. But in verse 11, he says, I've stored up your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is that idea of having eyes fixed. It's storing it in our minds. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Thinking about looking to the word of God consistently. I love baseball. It's one of my favorite sports. Not because I was ever good at it. I was actually quite terrible at the game. But I love watching baseball. I can watch all three hours, whether it's good or bad. I love baseball. It's good to be a Texan right now and loving baseball, right? Okay? So I love baseball. One thing I do know about baseball, even though I wasn't very good at it, I do know that as you're running on the bases, whether you're on base already, you've hit the ball and it's in play, and you're rounding bases, you are not just to look for the ball. You are to keep your eyes on that coach, whether it's the first base coach or the third base coach, especially when you're rounding second, you want to have your eyes on that third base coach. You want them fixed on him because he's either commanding you to come and to go or he's saying stop. Taking your eyes off that third base coach can either get you hung up or set back a little bit further than you could have been or out of the game. Keeping our eyes fixed on the word of God in such a way. As we're running in this life, we are looking to the commandments of God. We're keeping our gaze and our eyes fixed upon the word of God. And then verse 6, at the beginning of that, he says, Then I shall not be put to shame. It's true that obedience to the commandments of God will not put you to shame. You can have a clear conscience and knowing that you did what was right and honorable to the Lord. We live unto the Lord and not unto man. We want his praise. We want his attention, not man's. So we want to be pleasing unto him. It will not be put us to shame. Psalm 101, 2. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Can you agree with the psalmist there? Can you agree with David when he says, I will ponder the way that is blameless? Do you think and meditate upon the word of God? We'll read a passage here in a moment where it's described as, as honey. I mean, they didn't have little Debbies then. I'm sure that that's what he would have used if it was now. But this is like the sweetest and most prized thing that could touch your mouth. Honey. The word of God, sweet, a delight, a pleasure, it's good. Is that true for you? And in obedience, are you longing to walk in obedience to what you hear, to what you read? Wanting to obey it fully, consistently, always having your eyes upon it. Not because it will justify you. Not because it will make you righteous, but because you love the Lord and love to please God above all else. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon that he preached on some of these verses, 
He begins this with this. If a man seeks to keep the commandments of God in order that he may attain eternal life, he will be ashamed and confounded. He had better at once renounce the folly of t- attempting so insane, so futile, so impossible a task as that of defending his own cause and justifying his own soul. But when a man is converted, when he has believed in Christ Jesus to the salvation of his soul, when he is justified by faith and his sin is blotted out, when he has obtained mercy, found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and entered into the rest of faith because he knows that he is, he is a saved man, then, in keeping the precepts of the law, he will gratify a strong inclination. In fact, it henceforth becomes his highest ambition to be obedient. And the great delight of his soul is to run in the ways of God's commandments out of gratitude for the great benefits he has received. We're not justified by obedience to the law, but it is our joy now in Christ to obey them, to run after them, to think about them, to consider them and walk in the law of the Lord. It's our joy. God's way, he directs the way, he describes the blessed man through obedience to God's commands and then lastly to God's praise. Look at verse 7 with me. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. God is to be praised A life that sets out to praise God will lead to happiness. Giving praise to God will lead to happiness, to the blessed life. Looking to the Lord ultimately, magnifying the Lord ultimately, brings one to really the blessed life. But look at what it says, when I learn your laws, when I learn your righteous rules, learning the word of God, is the means to rightly praise God. We learn the law of the Lord. And as we learn the law of the Lord and obey the law of the Lord, we delight in the lawgiver, God. Turn with me to Psalm 19. I want to read these verses for us. And look at the delight that David had for the word of God. Psalm 19. Beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are sure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. It is worth our time and effort 
to learn the Word of God. I'm so thankful to be a part of a local body that is so dedicated to that. You as members, knowing your aim to love God's word, but you read it, you meditate on it, you think about it, you ask questions about it. It's such an honorable and beautiful thing to know that. But in our learning, it's not in vain because learning the word of God guards our praise. Guards our praise. Some of our brothers and sisters in the evangelical world think the opposite. They think that we become intellectual, that we're academic, we just get big heads, or we can be religious or, or pharisaical. No, that's not the aim. Our aim is to praise God rightly and fully, and that's in learning the law of the Lord. That's our aim. It guards our praise. Psalmist concludes by declaring he will keep the statutes of the Lord and pleads with God. That last line, do not utterly forsake me. There's a wonderful certainty in Jesus Christ that God will never forsake us or leave us. Joshua was charged by God to walk in obedience and to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. In Joshua 1 Lord says, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For When you make your ways prosperous and when you have good success, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Listen, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God will never forsake you, dear friend. Brother and sister in Jesus Christ, knowing that wonderful truth helps us press on in this life, knowing that the blessed way is God's way, through God's command for God's praise. That's the aim in life. It's accepting these wonderful truths. It can be easy to be fooled and think the world can give us true happiness. But the blessed life is defined and founded by God and God alone. And my prayer for us this morning is that we are walking in his way, that we are obeying his command, and we're giving him right praise. And all made possible because of Jesus Christ.